0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog from Fuga A to Fugazi. I'm your host, Ian James Wright, and joining me today to discuss Floating Boy from 1998's End Hits is drummer Will Rockwell Scott, who has played with the Mooney Suzuki and Wolf Mother. Will, welcome to the show. How's it going?
1: Hi, Ian. It's going really well. Really uh, excited to be here and uh, and have a conversation about my favorite band of all time. Mine too. Top two, at least. What would the other? What's the other one in your top two?
0: As different as it may seem, I really love The Smiths. Yeah, I'd say those two are my top. The Smiths is more of like my my guitar playing inspiration. Um, whenever I play guitar. As much as I would listen to like harder rock, I that's never really the style that I was interested in playing. But I was super interested in always trying to do the Johnny Marr kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, that's just where those tastes ended up for me. What about you? Has has Fugazi been a, a big influence on your drumming? I would say
1: that yeah. Anytime anyone asks me about drumming influences, Brendan Canty absolutely comes up. There's still things that I play to this day that I think I came up with and then I'll be listening to a Fugazi record and I'll be like, oh no, I just stole that one from Brendan also. Um, (laughs) A huge influence because when I first started really getting into their records was the same time that I was getting serious about being a drummer. So it just had a huge influence and a long lasting imprint on the way I think about drums. And there's certain things that Brendan did that no one I don't well I never heard anyone do before him or really since but that I will um shamelessly ape like you know the side stick on the rim keeping time there instead of on the hi-hat or ride cymbal is something I still do and that's just a direct lift from you know hearing him do that um if I could get away with using the farm bell I absolutely <laughs> would there was a period where I was actually like looking around for something like that but I think, you know, as time goes on and they become more and more iconic, it would just be it would be too blatant.
0: Are there any other specific things like that that you can articulate? I'm not a drummer, so I might not understand, but feel free to talk to me as if I were, because I, I think that's super interesting.
1: I mean, his hi-hat work is definitely, um, especially inside the uh, indie and, and, you know, whatever you want to call it, post hardcore music. Um, his hi-hat work is very unique. Um, I always thought of it as, as, uh, being kind of similar to the way Stuart Copeland from the police used the hi-hat. Um, but I don't think that Brendan necessarily was a big police fan. I've never heard him mention Stuart Copeland or anything. I think that the influence actually comes from them both being big reggae fans. And, uh, I actually later on started uh, investigating reggae, especially like from a drummer's point of view and really listening to what drummers were doing in reggae because of Brendan and because of Stuart Copeland too, who's another drummer I admire. I'm trying to think about other things. I mean, there's obviously a huge jazz influence too. Um, In a lot of interviews, Brendan talks about Tony Williams' being his all-time favorite drummer who was for people who don't know miles davis drummer um who joined the band when he he joined Miles's uh one of his classic quintets when he was 16 years old i think he was a total prodigy but um that was a huge influence on on brendan and uh i think um that was something i always assumed but i never really knew until i recently kind of listened to a bunch of uh podcast interviews and some print interviews with him, but he kind of said Tony Williams was his all-time favorite player.
0: Well, do you want to take a step back briefly and tell me about how you first got into Fugazi and your early memories of, of being a fan and how that progressed?
1: I think my first exposure to Fugazi as a concept or as any awareness of them being a band was probably through Thrasher magazine. I was a big skateboard kid. And I remember that Thrasher ran an article uh, about Fugazi. It was like a two page spread. Um, You'll see pictures of it sometimes on like Facebook, on discord records, uh, fan appreciation and stuff. But um, actually the, the the episode you just aired about, do you like me? I think he mentions your guest mentioned uh, that same article. Um, But I don't even know if I read the article. I just remember seeing the pictures and being like, that doesn't look like what I think of bands looking like. They look more like me and the people that I skate with. And um, it just sort of planted a seed. And then I remember when I was in eighth grade, a kid came up to me and he said, you kind of look like Ian from Fugazi. And I was just like, I've never heard them um but uh and i think he had you know i grew up in a an upper class town in suburban new jersey about um five miles outside manhattan and we didn't have a huge um you know any real like punk rockers or anything and and i was pretty much the only skateboarder in town too i think the way that he this guy had heard about fugazi was through this girl, Dorian Gary, a longtime friend of mine, um, I don't know how she knew about everything cool, but she was like the p- person who told everyone about Fugazi, told everyone about Riot Girl, Nation of Ulysses, um, pretty much just like anything exciting that was going on in music at that time um, came through Dorian Gary, so shout out to her. <laughs> it's and, so important
0: uh, to have a friend who knows all the cool shit. It, it really, I
1: I would probably still be listening to Living Color and Guns N' Roses if it wasn't for Dorian. <laughs> I mean, especially not, back in the I don't there's anything the wrong with those bands.
0: <laughs> right, of
1: course. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. There was so much legwork to do back in that back in those days to find cool stuff. And um, you know, nowadays if I had f- seen Fugazi in Thrasher magazine or whatever skateboarding blog I would just go to Spotify and be like this is my new favorite band I have the entire discography um but back then you know there was a lot more legwork so I didn't actually hear them until I was at my friend Matt Jones's house and he had just moved to our town from Chicago and I saw that he had a Fugazi CD it was Repeater and he had the CD, but it was missing the booklet. But he was like, Oh, that's one of the best CDs ever. Do you want to, do you want to borrow it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, and at this time I was very much looking for like a band that could be my own. Um, I think at that age, you know, 12, 13, um, there's a lot of kind of ownership and, identity issues going on and you kind of want to have a band that you feel like is yours and I didn't really know anyone who was claiming Fugazi so I kind of felt like maybe this is going to be my band (laughs) I have a brother who's uh my brother's about four years older than me and I always made it a point to uh, reject whatever music he was into so it was like oh uh, you know the Smiths can't be my favorite band because that's my brother's favorite band or like he's into Bauhaus or you know, earlier he likes Iron Maiden and Metallica, so those can't be my bands. Um, but uh, I remember very distinctly the first time I put on Repeater. It was in my mom's bedroom because I didn't have a CD player, but she did. And I remember putting it on, and those first swells of Turnover came on, and I was just sort of like, "What is this?" Because um, I had never heard music like that before. I didn't. I wasn't even that familiar with. With punk or hardcore at that point either. So to me it almost sounded like, especially those intro swells, like like a synthesizer or something. And then um, you know, once it kicked in, I was like, this is this music is insane. This sounds like punk rock being played in a space station. <laughs> I remember that was like what my yeah. what my thirteen-year-old brain thought about it. Um and I didn't have the booklet, so I knew i guess i knew the names of the songs because it was on the the back part of the cd but i didn't know any of the lyrics and i remember um and i would just listen to the cd and not really look at the song titles but for the longest time i thought the song repeater was about a girl named rita and that they were saying (laughs) one two three rough rita um (laughs) but i still you know i still i still loved it but once i actually bought my own copy I was very surprised at some of my misinterpretations <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh my god was was this before you started playing drums by the way this
1: was well, that this would have been eighth grade which was I'd had a drum set for for several years but um eighth grade is when I started getting serious about practicing and first started kind of to uh I guess, in ninth grade is when I started trying to form bands. I would say the first half dozen bands I was in it was it was basically Fugazi was the blueprint. If not the blueprint, it was the goal was to be as awesome as I thought they were and to be as diverse and to just to affect anyone the way that they had affected me and definitely yeah definitely drumming style I had a lot of friends who wanted to start punk bands but I was much more interested in playing like that halftime groove feel that that's more associated with Fugazi I wasn't really interested in doing the boom -bap bap 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 right um yeah and um I mean I guess this all leads up to the first time I was able to see them live um because I bought Steady Diet of Nothing in the summer of 92. I guess it had been out for a while already, but um, I just remember, I think I was at Sam Goody with my mom and seeing like, oh, there's, I don't have that Fugazi album. And I don't think I even knew if it was new or old or whatever, but I got Steady Diet and I loved that one too. Um, And then I remember in, let's see, in '93, Fugazi came and did two shows at the Roseland in New York City, and I had heard a lot about their shows. Their shows were mythical, um, but I just remember someone saying, "Fugazi." I just got tickets for Fugazi, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I just couldn't really believe that they were actually that I was going to actually get to see them live. Because by that point, I had seen a lot of a lot of you know, smaller punk shows and actually a lot of other Discord bands. I'd seen Jawbox and um, some bands like that, but it was like, you know, the Holy Grail, Fugazi coming to town. And I remember my friend saying, I got a ticket, it was $5. (laughs) And and it just blew my mind. And I had heard that all their shows are $5, but for some reason I thought, well, when they come to New York and play at, you know, a big venue like that, it's not going to be $5. And um, So that blew my mind. And then I remember looking in the Village Voice and seeing the ad for both nights. It was like a full page ad for Roseland. And the first night it was uh, Spinanes and Unrest were the openers. And the second night was, or sorry, I'm getting it backwards. First night was Mecha Normal and Jawbox opening. Second night was Spinanes and Unrest opening. So you, you went to both shows? I went to both shows. Yes,
0: nice. These these shows have come up a, a couple times in the course of this podcast so far. They're like, they they're, they sort of stand out in the live career of Fugazi and a lot of people's memories. And uh, yeah, I've listened to the shows myself uh, on the Discord live series. Pretty good.
1: Yeah, um, I don't know if I've I've listened to a lot of the live series. I don't know if I revisited those shows, um, but I do remember. I well, to backtrack a little bit, I listened to a interview with Guy, re- with Guy recently and where he was talking about those shows they're also kind of mythical because that's where Ahmet Erdogan of Atlantic Records yes. approached them with this you know suitcase full of money or whatever the story is uh, <laughs> metaphorical suitcase a b-
0: full of money at least
1: yeah the the bank check offered a you know it's a it's a great story um I will plug that podcast later but um but he also talks about how intimidating that room was um you know it's basically it was a had been a a dance club a huge dancing ballroom for a long time and um the capacity is I don't know was 2500 3000 people and I think for a for a band that's just two guitars bass and drums and also who people forget played with no stage lights just white lights all the time pretty intimidating so the first night um they came on and this was one month after In On The Killtaker had been released, Fugazi comes out and opens with Smallpox Champion. And this is one month after In On The Killtaker was released. And I was super pumped because I had been listening to the album nonstop. But I think at that time, new releases traveled a lot slower. Um, So a lot of the crowd wasn't familiar with the new album yet. And that first night... Leaned really heavy on that material, and I and I just remember I absolutely loved the show, but a lot of a lot of my friends were kind of scratching their heads, wondering why they didn't play more stuff that they knew, and just feeling like I don't know. I heard Fugazi was the best live band ever, but but I wasn't really seeing it last night, and I said, "You people are crazy." I'm going back tomorrow night, <laughs> and th- those people who did not go back the next night, I. I pity their existence because the next night was one of the best musical performances I've seen by anyone ever. They came out the next night and they were just firing on all cylinders. I feel like they knew the room and were comfortable on the stage at that point. And again, they never used a set list, but they came out and opened with Joe number one. And it was just like, it was electrifying. And I think everyone felt it that night, that, that second night at Roseland was incredible.
0: I'm looking at the set list, uh, on the website right now. Does look like a good one. Ending with the uh, promises into glue man. I love that. There
1: is some footage from, I think it's the first night that ended up in the instrument, uh, documentary. Um, I think it's from, or, or it could be glue man from the second night, but, um, but I do, I, it was, sorry, it was definitely the second night because I remember the camera crew being there and Ian made an announcement about, don't worry, we're not making any sort of high budget, uh, MTV video. This is strictly home
0: movies. <laughs> yeah, that's, that must've been so great to be there. I, I lived in New York for about five years. The only show I ever saw at the Roselands, I think was new order, uh, which was very wow. good. Um, Uh, Would have loved to see Fugazi there for sure. Did you ever happen to cross paths with them in your career as a musician or anything like that? I did a few times. Um, The first time was
1: in 97 when they played at the... I'm forgetting the name. The Palladium in New York. Um, I had been traveling with my friend's band who were on discord, uh, called the Monorchid, we an exceptional band. And, um, I had been, they had been, recorded some stuff at my brother's studio that we had in our dad's basement. And then I, I would just go to shows with them and, we went to one show at Bard College where they were like, hey, Will, why don't you play uh, auxiliary percussion and this Casio keyboard we just bought? Like, get on stage with us. And I was just like, sure, uh, why not? And then right after that show, they were they called me and, and said, uh, we're opening for Fugazi at the Palladium next week. Do you wanna do that show? And I was like, ah, uh, of course. Um, it was, it was a, it was really weird circumstances though, because you know, it wasn't my band and I wasn't, I was, wasn't was really doing anything that I thought added anything to it, but I was definitely happy to, um, get an opportunity to be in a closer proximity to my favorite band Um, and I, and I remember the day that we played the show loading in, um, and walking into Palladium, which is another huge room, but really good sounding, great for concerts. Um, and, uh, they were sound checking, and they were, and Brendan was checking his drums. And to just like listen to him, just improvising for two minutes, blew my mind. It was a rock and roll dream come true. Yeah, and then I did get to have a, a really scary run-in with Mister Ian Mackay. Um, so you got to remember, like um, my friends, whose band was on Discord. Uh, Chris Thompson was the singer who was also in uh, Ignition with Alec Mackay and uh, he was in Soulside and he basically grew up with with Ian. So to him, Ian is his you know basically his childhood friend. To me, Ian was basically Jimi Hendrix. So I, I wanted to get a couple friends on the guest list and I was like, hey Chris, do you know if there's a guest list? And he was like, oh yeah, sure, just go tell Ian your names. And I was. I was mortified. So I had to go into the dressing room and uh, approach Ian. And I was so nervous. And I was like, uh, excuse me, uh, sir, could I put a couple names on the guest list? And he looked at me and he was like, who are you exactly? <laughs> and I was, and I just sort of s- stammered and I was like, oh, uh, I'm with uh Monarchid. And he was like, Thompson, do you know this guy? And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was cool. He's like, yeah, he's cool. He's with us. And, I mean, in retrospect, I realized that he he probably saw me as a nervous kid and was just joking around. But yeah, absolutely, it was so it was so mortifying at the time. It was literally like if I was backstage at Monterey and had to ask Jimi Hendrix for guest passes or something. But um, and then right after that happened, um, in the hallway in the backstage at the Palladium, Ian was talking to the lighting guy for Palladium because you know, they didn't travel with the lighting guy because they never used, you know, color lights or gels or strobes or anything. So he's talking to Palladium's guy who was like, what do you guys want for lights? And he was like, we are white. We are white the whole time. No strobes, no gels, nothing. We are white. And I think the, uh, and he was like asking the lighting guy, like, what's your name? He's like, oh, my name's Ted, I'll be doing your lights tonight. And he's like, all right, Ted, we are white the whole time, just take it easy, nothing fancy ever, just relax, have a good night. And then I (laughs) wish there was a recording of this show. I know know that it is recorded, but it hasn't been released on the uh, live series yet. But so anyway, when I was watching their set, Ted, the lighting guy, would periodically like, put on the strobes or you know basically do everything ian told him not to do and ian was flipping out at him he'd be like ted god damn it what did i tell you about those lights (laughs) it's it was a really good moment but in retrospect i'm almost like was that all was that shtick was i supposed to see him telling ted no lights so that he could like berate him later from the stage (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes for I think your maybe <laughs> yeah, sometimes I think maybe Ian was a lot funnier and more even more clever than we knew.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's another common thread throughout this show, like just people's stories about him and just realizing he he just sort of likes messing with people and uh, he's a he's a puckish character. He is. <laughs> he like I'm sure he's well aware of the uh, sort of intimidating vibe he gives off to people, and he just sort of. <laughs> enjoys playing with that a little sometimes. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I can never figure that out. I either think he's totally aware of it, or maybe not aware of it at all. And that's why sometimes people get scared because he, um, he really doesn't realize the um, powerful effect that he has on. <laughs> but um, but I, I love Mr. McKay. I love everything he's done, and and listening to a bunch of interviews with him, preparing for this conversation, he just always has so much interesting stuff to say and, you know, as a musician, as a songwriter, as a uh, archivist and, uh, as a, you know,
0: label runner, just really endlessly fascinating guy. Well, I am certainly in agreement with all that. Although, um, I don't know how much of a role Mr. Mackay will play in our conversation today, but let's find <laughs> out. Um, because today we are talking about Floating Boy. It's the longest song on the album End Hits at 5 minutes 45 seconds. Maybe the weirdest Fugazi song, I don't know. We'll we'll see how you feel about that. Um, What, what would you like to talk about first when it comes to Floating Boy? Well, can I talk about End Hits for a minute? Go
1: off, yeah. Well, I will say that I think End Hits, especially at the time was their most uh, misunderstood album or just people were really scratching their heads off it. And a lot of people just straight up panned it. I was looking at some of the reviews from the time, like this all music critic. he I have him quoted as saying, uh, he singled out Floating Boy um, and some of the others as the worst stretch of material Fugazi has recorded. (laughs) Noting virtual complete disregard for linearity that makes things seem stitched together. (laughs) Um, You know, just like, um, very misunderstood album. And I think the main reason is if you, if it's taken in context of Fugazi, the band that made 13 songs or that made repeater, or even the band that made red medicine, it seems like a very weird, very uneven album. But I think, as time goes on, and also just put into the context of a record by a band, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I think some people may have problems with it because it is um, it's very dynamic. I wouldn't say uneven. I would say very dynamic. Some of the songs are some of their most blistering punk songs. I mean, there's songs on N Hits that I think are as ferocious as anything on and on the Kill Taker. But it also has like Pink Frosty, which is a song that almost is so vibey and mellow it it barely exists. Um, <laughs> I think of N Hits almost as being like. Fugazi's white album because, you know, it has these very classic Fugazi moments and then these total outliers, the same way like the White Album has Dear Prudence and While My Guitar Gently Weeps, but it also has I won't say Revolution number no. nine, but you know, it also has Rocky Raccoon and stuff like that, um and Piggies, you know, a lot of really experimental stuff. So Especially at the time when it came out, ninety eight, there was just nothing else that sounded like that. The only thing I could I was, you know, looking at what else was released that year and what else was charting on CMJ and the only thing that I could even like draw a line as being vaguely similar was Blonde Redhead, which mm. is a band that was closely related to Vegas and that, you know, Gee was at that time producing them. He right. was almost their, their fourth member essentially. Um, but, uh, I think it's a really, I've really grown to appreciate it. It's one of my favorite albums. Um,
0: Yeah.
1: uh, I think the white
0: album is a good point of comparison. That is pretty interesting. I, I think, I mean, I I think there is something to that if, if somebody wants to call this an uneven album, um, I could imagine, I like another point of comparison that I was thinking about is, uh, Radiohead's Kid A, which, yeah, like, I think this this album could have been more like that if like if say every song was like closed captioned floating boy if there was an if there was a whole album of that, then there'd be sort of a comparison there um and th- that's an example of an album that like totally lost some of the band's older fans, but it was you know hugely critically acclaimed and if you sort of take it as a piece, it hangs together better maybe than like if you had just. Shoved some of those songs on one of their older albums, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about and and i i sometimes I sort of wish that it had been that, and that's still sometimes I think about Fugazi getting back together, which i don 't think they ever will, but it it would be so cool if they recorded that kind of experimental album, just go all in on experimental, you know sort of leave the fireiness of youth behind a little bit and just go for it yeah. um that could be that could be pretty cool
1: yeah i i i was thinking i wish end hits had been a double album i feel like they probably had enough material where they could have had one album that was all the you know more not straight ahead but louder more rocking stuff and then a second album with the really dubby really experimental stuff
0: yeah that's that that would be super interesting. Like, <laughs> yeah, they, they could have. It's it's a weird album. It could have been weirder in a few ways, and that's that's one of them, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, and it seems like the the amount of material that ended up on the instrument soundtrack, uh, of which one of them is is the demo to this song. Maybe they would have had enough stuff to actually do that. Who knows? I, so, I sometimes wonder what's what's rattling around. What are they What are they sitting on that never got made into A song, even that they were just sort of jamming out. Yeah,
1: I was just wondering that today. I know that they have tapes and tapes and tapes of practices and jams and songs they haven't gotten around to. So we can only
0: we can only hope (laughs) one day. Yeah, as far as this song in itself, it's hard to know where to start. Like it's it's not um there are sort of few lyrics. I mean, there's yes. there are lots of lyrics, but they're repeated and, and just sort of uh, vague. So, uh, And and the music is not repetitive. There are a lot of different things that happen, different little parts and weirdnesses. I guess I would want to just start right at the beginning. Um, it seems like there's yeah. a little bit of studio chatter. I, What I hear is Ian saying at the beginning something like, okay, I wasn't in my head anyway. And then Don yeah, says, floating boy, take one. Uh, I love the way Don
1: says floating boy.
0: Yeah, floating boy. (laughs) As as if like, Um, as if he's thinking, this is a strange title for a Fugazi song.
1: (laughs) Floating boy, (laughs) question (laughs) mark.
0: I think that too, Um, uh, something else, I think whenever I look at the title of this song, I'm like, I wonder if this, (laughs) like, it makes me think of the phrase floating buoy. (laughs) like Ah, interesting as if somebody saw like a floating buoy and and i I don't know it's it's just a stupid half-formed thought but it, it always pops into my head for some reason
1: i think the first thing that um well the first thing i noticed the first time i played n hits and i'd heard a lot of these songs when they played that show at the palladium um but and I remembered the, the intro bass line, because I remember having the same thought that it reminded me of uh, Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath. Interesting. Um, <laughs> but right after that the bass line kicks in, you hear this this rattling sound, which I believe is a rain stick.
0: A and rain for stick. Anyone who really? doesn't
1: for anyone who doesn't know, a rain stick is a percussion instrument that it's a piece of wood with some sort of uh, beads inside that's generally sold at like hippie stores or uh crystal shops and things like that it's n- not generally something that you hear on a fugazi record or any rock record but i almost feel like i picture them being like do you think that bass line is like a little too close to like sabbath and then being like yeah i don't know what can we do to kind of counteract that i don't know
0: rain stick <laughs> do you remember the store natural wonders absolutely yeah that store i feel like was in every mall and they certainly had a bunch of rain sticks and that's like back in my young mall rat days you just you'd always wander into natural wonders pick up a rain stick play with that a little (laughs) bit (laughs) i yeah first the thing that came to mind to me was maracas just like being very gently manipulated but i think you're the you're the percussion expert here so you probably have better ears for that than i do whatever it is it's I, almost like a s m. r like are you one of those a s m r people
1: i love a s m r and i would totally agree with that assessment. <laughs> yes. i
0: i've never i like i don't i don't get what the thing that people get w- with that so um uh, i i guess from an abstract uh uh standpoint i can appreciate the appeal but it is like that it's like whatever that rattling sound is it's almost like it's inside your head the way it's recorded
1: yeah um i had never listened to floating boy on headphones uh, prior to when we first talked about doing this, but it's it is a great headphone song.
0: Yeah, and well, I mean, speaking of just that part, the the rattling thing with the bass line, then the um, Ian's guitar, he's playing with his toggle switch as he does sometimes yes. to great effect in the Fugazi catalog. Yes. But it's it's sort of I think the best he has ever done it in a way because. He's playing with it. It's it's like not a straight ahead rhythm. It's not just like da, 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 da. he has got a rhythm to it. Uh, he's bending the strings as he does it. And of course there's like a stereo pan that's happening with the recording. So it all comes together. It like feels very floaty. That's the best way to yeah. describe it maybe.
1: Well two things about that is I listened to the Floating Boy demo a bunch of times that's on the instrument soundtrack. And that part you're talking about ian's part is not on there i i think from what i've read i this is a guess but just a deduction from what i've read in various articles that uh that guy and brendan recorded the demo to floating boy and then they put it together for the n hits version later with the band so i think that's why ian's toggle switch part isn't on the demo but um yeah the toggle switch part is incredible and what it always reminded me of it was like a if you're familiar in hip-hop when they talk about a transistor scratch um like public enemy used it a lot and beastie boys used it a lot i don't and think i am what is that it's basically um instead of uh, well i'm not a hip-hop dj so i can't describe it well but but i've heard about it um, <laughs> it's basically instead of using uh, scratching as the technique it's um you use the transistor to mute and unmute a channel um like the song jimmy james by uh the beastie boys uses it a lot where there'll be like you know guitar feedback and it goes basically by um you know mute you're muting and unmuting using the the uh the transistor on a on a mixing board. I'm sure I'm slaughtering the explanation, but huh. it, you
0: got the the general idea. By the transistor, are you talking about like the thing that pans between the two turntables? Is that? What yes. It? Okay. Is that I didn't know I didn't know that was called a transistor. Okay. That's uh that makes more I sense. I might be
1: I might be totally wrong, but this is um in the BC boys book, um there's a lot of talk about
0: about that uh
1: Technique.
0: Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, but I I can see that with the uh like being a being an analog to this little technique. That's cool.
1: Yeah, and and even going going back as far as Repeater and the, the title track on Repeater, Fugazi are always talking how Public Enemy was a was a huge influence on what they were trying to do sonically. So yeah, um, so that's always what that part kind of reminded me of.
0: There are there are some parts in the Fugazi catalog that have these sort of high sustainy melodies that are a little g funk ish maybe or like or i guess i guess that goes back to before g funk but one of those sort of like high uh, maybe synthesizer parts in a hip hop song
1: absolutely i mean i think it's it totally makes sense that someone did a uh, a project of mixing uh, Fugazi and Wu-Tang Clan because, and I guess Jay-Z also s- has an unreleased track where he sampled um, uh, closed captions yeah, yeah. Uh, from, from the Black Album. I mean, it makes sense. It's groovy, <laughs> it's groovy butt-shaking music.
0: Yeah, and, and I think I was, I, I assume from how you're talking about Guy and Brendan doing this, maybe you read that Tape Op interview that I saw also? I have I just read that one today yeah so that's that's where I got the same impression and they're they're talking there about the, the only specific reference to floating boy it seems is uh, they were talking about that they for a section of it they only used the bottom snare mic
1: yes I I read that too and I instantly investigated it and I th- I think the section that he's talking about is the very end where they foreshadow FD. Okay. Um, where, where I believe, you know, they edited it in a section of, from from FD, and it goes, you know, bam, 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 and then there's those kind of like, boom, Yeah, with tons of echo that, on it. Yeah, I think that is from the bottom snare mic run through delay and some kind of synthesizer, um, which is, I don't know, that's an incredible way to end the song, an incredible
0: piece of music i think we talked on the fd episode about how it's it's always cool when an album reprises an earlier like little motif like that Um, yes it's it seems at first like you first listen through this album it's like oh this interesting little throwaway riff at the end of the song and then it comes back in a huge way in the last track
1: and one of the brendan interviews i think it was a podcast i listened to he was talking about music he was turned on to early by his brothers and sisters who were older and one record was miles davis at fillmore you know which is a it's probably early 70s after bitches brew but around that same time live evil um you know all those records on the corner i think if there's anything that informed this this song as far as uh the general vibe of it, I would, I would go for seventies electric miles. Um, but with a much more, you know, stripped down toolbox, cause obviously they're not using horns or tablas or, you know, a lot of effects or anything. But I also think that use of, um, editing part of another song into a separate composition is a very miles move. Like, uh, there's a part in one of the songs on Miles Davis album a tribute to Jack Johnson where he just cuts in a part of a song from a previous album in a silent way Hmm. there's like you know a couple minutes of that in the middle and then it goes back to the song so I think starting around Red Medicine they had gotten really into tape editing and you know editing and parts of a a practice into here or parts of you know another song and I think that really um, allowed them to do even more creative stuff in the studio
0: yeah, uh, but um, there are actually horns on this song, right? There's there is definitely, I believe,
1: clarinet because that was usually geese go to uh, yes. instrument.
0: Yeah, but it sounds like they
1: just kind of come in and bleeps and I would uh, my guess would be that they recorded him probably playing through the whole song and then decided they would just kind of bring it in and kind of uh, with a King Tubby treatment. Yeah, just like what if it just has a little stab here rather than like on something like version where he's. Playing more of a melody through the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that, and then it, that comes out in an interesting way in the live versions that I've been able to like see videos of. Oh online, yes, where um uh, our old our friend uh, Jerry Busher, fifth member of, of Fugazi, is. Yes, he's, he seems to be starting off the song playing kazoo, and I believe.
1: You know, you may be right. What I thought he was playing was just the mouthpiece to his trumpet. Oh, but you might be—you might be right about the kazoo, because it, it, whatever it is, it sounds crazy. Yeah. And I think it's so badass and bold that he got up, you know, at the front of the stage into a mic and was playing quack <laughs> quack 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 quack. I mean, it was. I just love that whatever Fugazi did, whether it was that or, like, a rain stick in a song or sang Baby, like, it immediately
0: made it the punkest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, and then um, after that part, he brings out the trumpet, it seems like, for live versions uh, for the end of this song. Yeah, I've, I saw one video where he's like, it looks like a regular trumpet. One, he had this sort of mini trumpet. I don't know if that's a different instrument or if it's just a smaller trumpet, but... Um, yeah, he's <laughs> he's added something cool to the live versions of this song that I'm I'm glad he could bust that out live.
1: Yeah, I loved everything that that Jerry added um live and on the, you know, the few recordings that that he played on. I actually read an interview with Brendan recently where he talked about at one point thinking that Jerry might take over for him on drums and Fugazi would would have kept going. I guess this was around the time uh brendan 's wife was expecting their fourth, and he was just thinking like i don 't think I can do this anymore, <laughs> but uh maybe Jerry can take over, which you know I thought was very cool, and I just never even thought that would have ever been something that was uh, considered, but I guess you know uh cooler heads prevailed, but <laughs> yeah that I, just I that just shows how valuable Jerry was to them
0: yeah i don 't think I' had ever seen that uh whatever that interview that was that 's super interesting interesting to to contemplate. Speaking of jazzy elements of this song, there's this little uh, bass guitar breakdown that happens sort of in the middle.
1: Oh, <laughs> so brilliant. That is is one of the craziest moments in their entire catalog because it's basically two bars of 5-4 time in the middle of a song that's in 4-4, four, four, and it's a part that doesn't appear anywhere else in the song. It's just so weird and out of left field. And I love how... How that break happens, and then it goes into a, you know, that those powerful chords that remind us a little bit more of uh, what we think of, you know, Fugazi sounding like.
0: Yeah, and then th- the part sort of that happens really soon after that is also really bizarre time-wise, or at least that's the way it yeah. seems at first, because that's where it's just Ian playing, and he's playing this part that's like chunk, chunk. Chunk, da, 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 da. and when you're listening to the song it seems like it doesn't make any sense rhythmically it just seems like this total like breakdown but then th- that is the rhythm for the float on the ocean part um and and it totally works in that so once you realize that's what's happening it's sort of like oh i i see
1: yeah initially when that guitar is introduced it sounds like it sounds like someone's taking off their guitar and just forgot to turn the volume down or something, or it's being tossed down the stairs and the song is imploding on itself. But then it becomes the basis for this whole, you know, another section of the song,
0: which I think is really, really bold and really brilliant. Like Guy's voice recorded over itself, but with with sort of different, I guess there's one, there's one, his main like, V- recorded vocal in this song, it sounds so gorgeous. Like, however they recorded it, his voice really sounds great. And then it seems like they recorded something that's just super overdriven, like clipping, and he's like screaming something. It's yeah, yeah. Inaudible. I love that almost.
1: contrast. Yeah, yeah. I was just trying to to draw lines of of comparison to other music that was happening at the time or maybe what they were influenced by and really kind of like that 70s miles davis period and can were the only two i could kind of think of that maybe yeah maybe they were listening to a lot of that stuff and just wanted to really like i also just think fugazi was always about um not repeating themselves and I don't think they ever really thought about people's expectations for the next record or what people wanted the next record to sound like. It was more, how could they keep it interesting for themselves and not repeating themselves. And I think they really did that better than, than any other group. And this song is a really strong example of that. Um, you know, just making some really leaping into bold new territory for both them as players and for, for listeners too.
0: Yeah, the the quote you gave before from that reviewer, a virtually complete disregard for linearity. Like, I can I can imagine them hearing that and be like, "Yeah, it's a, that, that's a criticism." Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean,
1: I I think one of the things I love about Fugazi is I think throughout their career, whether it, they were always asking why, why does something have to be like this? Whether it was about like, why do we have to charge more than five dollars? Why do we have to? Why can't we play all ages shows um or in this case, why do we have to repeat that section? Why does it have to have a chorus um I feel like they they constantly challenged tradition in a way that
0: gave really amazing results well said, and th- this is I said right off the top, maybe the weirdest song do you would you say this is the weirdest fugazi song, or um does anything else come to mind?
1: I remember at that show, hearing it for the first time, I would have, I would have said, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm gonna, mm, I'm gonna go with Pink Frosty for the weirdest of all time, but this is, (laughs) I would say is a close second. Just because there's not even any drums in Pink Frosty. Um, uh, But yes, very
0: weird in a very awesome way the um I I think the the big musical element that we haven't touched on is the uh the part where is talking about the sun there's this huge like sustainy yes. feedbacky guitar parts it sounds sounds like that both guitars beautiful. are beautiful, kind of, yeah playing the same the same note and just you know letting letting it feedback with their amps or whatever
1: yeah that I was listening well on the instrument demo version I actually prefer some elements of of the demo especially the way the drums are recorded because they're so up front and they're really dry and what Brendan plays in that section on the demo is is so fantastic he really does sound like the Tony Williams of post-hardcore or whatever (laughs) you want to say he's his phrasing is just he's obviously improvising but his phrasing is incredible and the drums are so clear but, um, the n hits version the the way those guitars it sounds like they might have overdubbed a couple extra feedback in guitars, but it's such a beautiful, huge moment, and I feel like that sound informed the lyrics, like to me, sonically, it's like it sounds like the sun rising or setting or something, yeah. And That's it makes true. sense to introduce that that theme. Also, we've seen a lot in Guy's lyrics that he is a, a naturalist. He's always talking about um, things every human can relate to, like having a body or my hands or, um, you know, in this song, I think a lot, nature, the sun, float on the ocean. Um, and uh, that part at the very end... The uh, part we've talked about before where it kind of foreshadows FD to me sounds like either, yeah, the sun rising or like a giant tsunami wave coming in. And um, I think the lyrics to me are kind of talking about um, how nature, whether it's the sun or the ocean, can be something that, you know, we obviously rely on to live and can get comfort from going to the beach or whatever or sunbathing or we need it to see i think i'm not sure on the lyrics i couldn't get a proper uh, a proper lyric sheet anywhere for what he says at the very beginning when he goes to see all right or if he's saying to swim all right i'm not sure but yeah, I, like, yeah I thought
0: well, it could have also been too sweet but i i don't it's <laughs> it seems like to see might make more sense with the rest of the lyrics
1: yeah, and I was thinking like, Yeah, we need the sun to see, we need it for plants to grow, but at the same time it can there's that whole section, it burnt the shit out of our behinds. We rode on <laughs> on towels to avoid hot seats or whatever it is. And that just reminds me of being a kid and going to the beach and having the best time and then getting so sunburned <laughs> that I su you know, that I suffered for days and the seats yes. and the car were so hot we had to put towels down and it's like or this one time I got you know sucked under by a big wave and then a jellyfish stung me it's like nature is this beautiful fun thing and it helps us live and thrive but it also it it also never lets us forget that it has the power to annihilate us at any moment
0: (laughs) I would hope that's a more common experience than it probably is um, given how much of this country is just sort of like in you know landlocked but yeah, definitely. The Jersey Shore as a kid, I spent a lot of time just, you know, body surfing, getting pounded by the surf, getting <laughs> getting way too sunburns, huge blister on my nose, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. the The line it ripped the shit out of our behinds. I th- like. We've gotta gotta focus on that as maybe the, like the standout, memorable lyric. Right? <laughs> it's definitely absolutely. <laughs> it's I, yeah. I like that for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all. I like to imagine it as something you would say casually, like, you know, hey, Will, was it hot today? Yeah, man, the sun really ripped the shit out of our behinds. Like, <laughs> I, I, I wonder if that's how the this lyric started. Like, somebody just said that and Guy thought it was hilarious and was like, okay, I'm going to put that in a song. Like, and I also like that like the the juxtaposition in that line basically shit is the most impolite word that we have for that and behinds is one of the most polite <laughs> so yeah it's like it's that, not that like rip the really... shit out of our asses it's rip the shit out of our behinds which is like i don't know for some reason yeah, that's, that's just very funny yes it ripped the turds right out of our tuckuses <laughs> rip the poop out of our butts man damn <laughs> now that that is a lyric that would take me a back in a Fugazi song. <laughs> that that was actually the, I think I read
1: somewhere that that was the original. Lyric. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: no. But yeah, like the whole that whole thing about the sun coming up and uh, we drove home on towels off the heat of the seats. Yeah, some somehow this song really reminds me of Patti Smith. It's just like almost stream of consciousness poetry, um, and the music matches it a little bit in terms of just the feel of it the swell the the ominousness the 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 unwavering like you can feel the unwavering stare glare of the sun as as those guitars just sort of like bore into your ears um it's it's all it all creates a very interesting effect
1: yes i um i would imagine that knowing a little bit about the way that they put their songs together that you know this obviously started as a as an instrumental and they probably had the working title of floating or floating boy maybe because of the way the music sounds there's not a whole lot to grab onto it's very it's very floaty it's very groovy and this is total guess on my part but i would imagine that they had recorded all the music before before gee maybe even wrote lyrics or sang anything over it. I would think that that was the very last addition, but mm. I think he did a really good job of of adding uh, lyrics that really matched the uh, the impact sonically. But again, that's just a guess.
0: I feel like that a lot in Fugazi songs. I just imagine they wrote the music first. The title maybe came from the, the music, and sometimes the title that title influenced the lyrics that ended up being written. So, yeah. Uh quite possible, quite possible. I like it. It's it's funny that he turned this into a song about the beach. I just I like imagining <laughs> I like the idea of this being like a beach jam, like bring a boombox <laughs> to the beach and just blast this on your on your beach blanket. <laughs> Gonna make a lot of friends that way. <laughs> it's like guy next to yous playing Bob Marley. Let's bust out the <laughs> Floating Boy by Fugazi. Um also about the lyrics, oh, I brilliant. I'm not sure where, but I feel like I remember a while ago reading somewhere that somebody thought this song like assumed the song was about Elian Gonzalez. You remember that whole thing? Oh, you know I th- yeah. I think I
1: remember reading that on some on like some way back probably around the time early internet days yeah someone someone's saying something about that which did seem to make sense at the time but i don't think that it works timing wise no no that happened after when the song was yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah but it's funny because like it's one of those things where everyone just assumes that fugazi is going to be political any chance they can get at all times yeah (laughs) um so yeah i think we can safely say it is not about that uh given the timeline and given that he's talking about you know driving home on beach towels and such um the only other thing i i
1: could take out of the title was that maybe it was a reference to icarus somehow and you know this kind of the idea of floating too close to the sun or uh,
0: that is the kind of reference that i really enjoy and i did not think of that (laughs) yeah that makes a lot of sense to me (laughs) um yeah i wonder if i wonder if that ever crossed Guy's mind that's very interesting uh I guess um, if you don't have anything else major to say, we'll go to social media and read off some people's comments. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Let's see a few. You... oh, I forgot one more thing that I just wanted to mention the the part where geese singing fa 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 fa. you ever watch Flight of the Concords?
1: I've seen a few episodes but I'm not a completist.
0: Okay. Um, it's such a good show. I I very much recommend it. Hilarious. I do um, love all
1: the all the music that they that they do.
0: Yeah, well, there's one episode where they they sing this song that's like a uh, fake French song where, where they're just saying all these lyrics that are like French 101 sentences that you would say, <laughs> but it's called fou de fa-fa. And They're Like Fa Fafa Fafa. So I always think of that uh, at that part.
1: i'll have to check that out
0: um so social media let's go to kieran o'sullivan he says nice baseline from joe otherwise one of the few fugazi songs i skip pete fraser says it was really the moment the penny dropped for me what they were doing with end hits the fact that it's generally a bit of a different album for them having been buzzing around my head up to that point they feel like a band that whether they discussed it or not, had this kind of consensus that an album was a collection of songs that represented how they sound on stage, and with so much of End Hits, it feels like there's been an executive decision to just let that go for the album and do what they wanted. Like, there are a bunch of albums in, they've done a load of studio, and they've decided to play with the toys finally. If End Hits is their white album, hey, uh, then Floating Boy is its Revolution 9. This is, These are both things that you mentioned. <laughs> That's amazing.
1: Well, I will... I will say that uh, that comment about them basically playing the studio as an instrument is something that they have talked about uh, around the time of Red Medicine is when they first said, like, instead of using the studio as this really clinical environment to try and recapture this explosive live show that we have, why don't we take advantage of what we can do in the studio that we can't do on stage? So I think that's a really astute observation on, on that part. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's their revolution number nine, because I mean, talk about most skip songs. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would say it's like their uh, um, Your Blues or their uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I love the White Album. I love Rocky Raccoon. Well, um, this seems Bundle like a Bill. good
0: uh, junction in which we could talk about ratings. <laughs> So, you seem to be ramping up to talk about how much you like this song exactly. Do you think you could give it a rating out of five stars in the context of the Fugazi catalog?
1: In the the context of the Fugazi catalog, um, I'm going to give this one four stars. I actually don't rate any Fugazi song under three stars, and a lot of their stuff, five stars, definitely. I will say that... um, out of the context if you just played me this as like hey check out this song that i found on this weird 45 if you played me this song i would definitely give it five stars because it's it's just so creative and so out there i would want to know who did this but i think yeah in the in context with the rest of their material i give it a solid four stars how about
0: you yeah i struggle with this one so much um like yeah, there are so many things I like about it uh, that are that are super interesting. Um, like I like the main bass line, I like the toggle switch thing, I like that sustainy um, uh, uh, guitar parts for where the sun came out. Um, but then yeah, the the clunkier stuff like that that bass breakdown, Ian's chunks on guitar, they're they're interesting. I don't know if I like them as elements of a song. And I think the, the thing that gives me such difficulty is like, I, as I was saying earlier, I feel like I would be more geeked out about this if it was just like a whole album of this and it was its own thing. It's just so, when when you butt it up against other songs on the album, you know, place, position, whatever... I, it's it's weird. It's like, um, yeah, I don't know. I have a I have a very hard time talking about this song per se, rather than talking about it as a as a piece of a larger album. So, yeah, um, I I think it's like the, this whole rating thing is is predicated on the idea that there will be one star songs, right? <laughs> but, um, uh. But yeah, this this is not a one star song. I I think I'd have to go with two for this. Um,
1: So, okay, I think you gave Dear Justice Letter a a brutal one point five star rating.
0: Yeah. You disagree with me on that one?
1: No, that's actually my only skipped Fugazi song. That's that is one song that about halfway through I will skip. Interesting. Um, Dear, Dear Justice Letter is the yeah, the only one that I skip, but it's cooking for the first half, but then I'm but then it's all over.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was was that an intentional joke? That was. Okay, no, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I think it's 2 stars. I'm starting to wonder if like I haven't planned out any of these ratings in advance. I'm starting to wonder if I could bring myself to give any Fugazi song a one, just a one-star, but I guess we'll see.
1: I will say this. One of the reasons when, when we first talked and you gave me some options about what song we could do, um, I think, I'm trying to remember what some of the other ones were, but like um, Gimme the Cure was one of them. And for example, like Gimme the Cure is... I don't think anyone would argue it's a, f- a five-star Fugazi song. It's amazing. But I was like, do I want to have a conversation about a song that's so obviously in- incredible, that's widely agreed on? I was thinking, like, if I was going to talk about Dylan, would I want to do a-, a conversation about Visions of Johanna or, or would I want to do one about, like, why I like Slow Train coming or, mm-hmm. or Jokerman or something? It just seemed like we could have a cooler a more int- more interesting conversation about a song that maybe is less agreed upon.
0: Yeah, I salute you for it and I I very much appreciate you um you tackling one of the songs that people are like what the hell is going on here. Um so cheers for that and as my way of saying thanks, I will allow you to do some plugs. Never mind what's- any kind of uh, projects you're involved in or just simply where listeners can reach you at your various handles or whatever, uh, plug anything that you want, sir.
1: Uh, well, if anybody wants to contact me, I love to talk about Fugazi all the time. It's uh, Will Rockwell Scott on Instagram and Facebook. Um, I just yesterday released a, an album with a band been that we put together a couple years ago with my friend Aaron Emsley. We're called Secret Stare, and that self-titled album is available on all streaming platforms. And my friend Ikoot Ozen, who is recording this right now, uh, directed an amazing music video for us. Please check that out on YouTube. Um, And that's all I want to plug for myself. I will also encourage people to to check out... uh, Joe Gross's 33 and a third book about in on the kill taker, because I found that uh, so informative and um, also just encourage people to, uh, if you're like a Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, just uh, plug in the names of the individual members of Fugazi, because there's so much great material out there. So many uh, great interviews. Um, There's a really recent interview with, Ian McKay on the adulting well podcast. Um, that was excellent. Um, there's a podcast called the art of process with Amy Mann and Ted Leo that Ian was on. That, that one was great. There's a podcast called the working songwriter has a great interview with him. All the Nardwar, the human serviette uh, (laughs) interviews with Ian are hilarious. And there's another recent one of that. Um, podcast called essential tremors that guy and ian have both been on talking about records that influence them um based on a true story which you've talked about before based b-a-s-s-e-d where I had joe lally on i thought that was a great interview um guy was on the podcast live from the barrage recently it's a really long interview that was really great and i think most of them have been on a uh, peer Pleasure podcasts, which is which is usually great. Oh, and uh, Ian and you were both on a Washed Up Emo. That's a podcast that I have only listened to those two episodes of, but um, the interviews are are really great. Um, yes, yeah, that's, I've, that's I've listened
0: to some of those episodes you mentioned, but not all of them. So I will have to go back and check them out. I'm very interested in the Adulting one in particular. All right. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah.
1: And I will also just encourage people who listen to this show to listen to all the episodes, especially the, the extras you did, the the Ted nicely ones I enjoyed so much because he is one of my favorite producers of all time and he is criminally underdocumented. Um, there's not a whole lot written about him. So it was so nice to hear, um, to hear him talk about himself and, uh, to get a little more insight into records. He, He's made, um, and the the stuff with Don Ziantara was excellent too. So everyone should listen to those.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, Ted was amazing. It was great to have him. And just this morning, I think I saw him post like on Facebook that there's this series of maybe interviews with him coming out in in some form. I don't even know what it is, but uh, if I I'll look back and oh, maybe put that in the show notes, and uh, we we might have some more Ted nicely stories to uh to get us through whatever weird time this is that's happening right now. Um all right great. so thank you so much Will it was great to talk to you and my plugs same thing as usual. You can recommend this show to a friend or rate it on Apple Podcasts or whatever. You can reach me at Fugazi a to Z at gmail.com You can join the Facebook group, The Alphabetical Fugazi, and tell us what you think about this song and about any songs I have coming up in the pipeline so I have a chance to include your name in the episode. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing Foreman's Dog. Until then, keep your eyes open.